0: What a wonderful way to refresh our minds and remind our hearts that we serve a great God. And I think that perhaps God's greatness is nowhere made more manifest and more clear than when we understand God's sovereign control over adversity. You know this as well as I do. When you have experienced hardship, um, many of you have said, I just don't know how I would get through What I went through without the Lord. And we hear of how people are broken and circumstances are terrible. And we go, how do they manage life without God? As we continue moving in consecutive fashion through the book of Ecclesiastes, we come to a big question here this morning. And depending on how raw the hurts in your heart are this morning, That will probably prejudice your answer this morning. But here's the question. Is suffering totally negative? Is suffering totally negative? Now let me say it at the set. This is not, you know, the kind of sermon that you set out to preach. But it's the kind that as you walk through the scriptures, you cannot avoid. You need the full counsel of God's Word. And so if you come this morning with a heart that's a little raw from the experiences of life, my prayer this morning is that you will see something of the wonder and majesty of God, even in His sovereignty over what is difficult. The truth is, we ask that question, is all is suffering totally negative? And at first blush, we're probably tempted to say, yeah. But as we stop and we consider and we think about it, the truth is there's, there's a lot to learn from suffering. Suffering is kind of like a time out in life where you get a chance to evaluate how you're living and as you're climbing the ladder, which wall is your ladder leaning against? Are you operating with what you say is most important? We know, as we've studied through the book of Ecclesiastes, that living a life of wisdom, it's the best way to live. But we also know that pursuing a life of wisdom doesn't always pay off immediately. Sometimes the wicked prosper, and sometimes those who are most faithful don't appear to get any kind of blessing. Sometimes we are broken because of our own mistakes, our own indiscretions, our own bad choices, and sometimes we're simply broken because we live in a world that is cursed, and there are people that don't care about the rule and the ways of God, and they don't care who they step on to get where they want to go. Yet we do know that wisdom and a life of wisdom ultimately works out because wisdom leads us to the cross of Christ, and it leads us to the gospel. So the long answer to a short question is suffering is only totally tragic if you refuse to learn the lessons that God has for you through it. As we uh, move from... Ecclesiastes chapter six, verse 10 through chapter seven, verse 14. We'll see a number of things that are important for us to learn as we deal with tragedy and suffering and oppression. And we begin at the very beginning, uh, chapter six, verses 10 through 12, where Solomon acknowledges that as we look at our passage here this morning, that his examination of wisdom is highlighted, but what we could call the sovereignty of God and the plight of man. Man is in a plight. We're in a problem, and the Bible deals with this very open-handedly and very evenly. Listen to what the Scriptures say in verses 10 through 12 of chapter 6. Whatever exists was given its name long ago, meaning you weren't around to name it, and God was. God, God figured it all out long before you ever existed. He didn't need your permission. And he didn't need your collaboration. Whatever was exists was given its name long ago, and it's known what man is. Man's a creation of God. But, but he, man, is not able to contend with the one stronger than he. I think that's a reference to God. We can't contend with God. Job found that out the hard way, right? God, why is all this happening? God just said, hey, where were you when I created the earth? Where, where were you when I made Leviathan, behemoth, these massive creatures? Where, where were you? Verse 11, for when there are many words, they increase futility. So what is the advantage for man? And then listen to these questions. For who knows what is good for man in life? In the few days of his futile life that he spends like a shadow. Who can tell man what will happen after him under the sun? Again, our first point. Solomon is highlighting the sovereignty of God and the plight of man. And he talks about God's predetermining power. He didn't ask us if we'd like where the mountains are placed. And um, we're kind of fortunate because we're close to the beach and to the mountains. But he didn't ask us about where, we, where, where they were going to be placed. He didn't ask you about what country you'd like to be born in. Um, he didn't ask you about what kind of government you'd like to be under. He, his predetermining power, whatever exists, was given its name long ago. And then he talks about man's creatureliness. We're a creature. Now, I, I hate to inform you of that this morning. But there's there's one God, and it's not you or me. We are a creature. And sometimes because of that gap between creator, sovereign creator, and finite creature, it, it, it creates some dissonance for us. And we're reminded that while arguing with God is possible, it's not really profitable. You can argue with God. Have at it. He can handle it. I can't promise that it's going to be the best experience for you. In Isaiah chapter 45 verse 9, we're reminded of a great verse that says that he is the potter and we are the we're the clay. He molds us and he makes us according to his own designs. And so while we recognize the great difference between us and God and we wrestle with our finite knowledge, Solomon asks here two big questions. Did you see him? I think verse 11 in verse 12, the questions that Solomon asks is, what is good? And secondly, what does the future hold? What's the future hold? Do you really want to know that que- the answer to that question? What is good? We're working our way through this world, and there are so many competing voices that say, if it feels good, do it. And yet God says self-control is a really good thing. How do we evaluate those two contrary opinions? Moreover, what does the future hold? If being good doesn't pay off immediately, then why should we be good in the first place? What's the benefit? We're confused about these questions today. People are searching for questions about the meaning of life. We know that the world is broke and there are all kinds of options about how to fix it. Listen, it is no secret... If you watch the news, um, shame on you. Um, it's a depressing a tragedy to watch the news. But you know what some people think is broke about the world? Some people think what is broke about the world is that God made some kind of divine mistake in assigning the gender that they are. And so people think gender is completely liquid. I can make it what I want to be. And the, the sad truth is that gender reassignment will lead to a 20-time tw- increase in the rate of suicide. Think your gender's broke? That's not the answer to the deepest things in life. There are people who go, you know, I've been married for 20 years, and the freshness and excitement is gone. So let me experience serial intimacy with several men or several women, and maybe that will be the spark that makes life fun again. There are some people who, despite being husbands and fathers, think that putting 80 hours a week in at work is what's really going to make their mark in the world. And so they have a wife that longs for the intimacy of friendship and companionship, and kids that wonder do they really have a dad, somebody that did something besides sire them? And we think that workaholism is the answer. There are some that are just so beat up by the circumstances of life that the only thing that they live for is Friday night and a case of beer. And they think that they need to intoxicate themselves to endure. It's perhaps unsought advice. But what Solomon is going to point out is that wisdom can perceive good even in adversity. Listen, you all shook your head. You said, you know, suffering's not totally negative. There are good things that come out of that. So let's see where Solomon directs us as he seeks to provide an answer to these big questions of life. Solomon begins to answer how we know what is good. And Solomon gives a whole series of Proverbs uh, beginning in chapter 7 in which he repeats that something is good or better nine times. Nine times in chapter 7, verses 1 through 14, he says, this is good, this is better, this is wise. And he begins with a really serious challenge. Solomon challenges us and he says, don't dance around death. Don't pretend like it doesn't exist. Don't dance around death. What is something that we all try to avoid? Listen to chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. And I love how it starts off because you've you've heard this phrase before. A good name is better than the finest perfume. So he's saying what is good is to have good character, to have a good reputation, to have a good name. Because you know if you have a bad name, it's almost impossible to get a good name. It's going to take a long time. So Solomon is saying you want to know what is good? It is good to have a good name. The challenge is you can't get a good name apart from God. What the world defines as a good name or what God defines as a good name is something radically different. So he says a good name is better than fine perfume. Listen to this. And the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Verse two. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting since that is the end of all mankind and the living should take it to heart. Verse 3, grief is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be glad. Verse 4, the heart of the wise is in a house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in a house of pleasure. This is definitely counterintuitive wisdom. He tells us in the very beginning part of verse 1, what is good. He says it's our character, and if our character is important, how do we develop it? How do you develop character? You develop character by considering how you live. If you never stop to think about how you live, you're never going to be intentional about developing your character. If you're just flitting from flower to flower like a butterfly, taking what life gives you and not really considering how you live, you're not going to make improvements. So he gives us three comparisons. He says that death is better than birth. He says that funeral, a funeral is better than a festival, and he says that grief is better than giggling. Grief is better than laughter. And you sit there and you, you scratch your head on a Sunday morning because it's a dreary day and it's overcast and your coffee hasn't kicked in yet. And you go, how is death better than birth and a funeral better than a festival and grief better than giggling? And the point is this, that while we generally avoid the transitoriness, the quickness of life, At a funeral home or a cemetery, you come face-to-face with reality. You have to consider your own mortality. You have to consider that life is brief. His point is this. Frat parties don't really encourage you to think about your life. Super Bowl parties don't necessarily make you think about the quality of how you live and the choices that you make and whether you have a good name. Death, even though it is an enemy is at the same time an evangelist. Doesn't death make you think seriously about ultimate issues? Death is an enemy, but it's also an evangelist. And what is this evangelist death asking us to do? He's asking us to examine our life. What will people say about you when you're, when you're gone? Are you, the Bible says it's wise to number your days. There's this great, balance that starts off like this when you're born. All your days are in front of you. But every day there's marbles that are transferred from one side of the scale to the other. And now for some of you it's teeter-tottering. For others, it ain't teeter-tottering. It's dunk. it's gone the other direction. The marbles are now behind you instead of front of you. The Bible says to number your days. It says don't waste your life chasing things that aren't ultimately important. Regard the time that you have as a treasure. I never hear anyone at the funeral say, well, I'm really glad he's gone. Didn't want to spend any more time with him. The Bible says treasure the time that you have as a gift given from God. The truth is, a funeral is a lot like a detox clinic. It forces you to sober up. It forces you to come face to face with things that He'd rather just not face. Death is an enemy, but it's also an evangelist. The point here is that Solomon is not against enjoyment. Uh, Four or five times through Ecclesiastes, we've heard eat, drink, and enjoy the life that God gives. He is not opposed to enjoyment. Actually, Solomon advocates it. Under God, enjoy the life that he has given you. But he's telling us that you don't learn from a comedy the same way that you do from a tragedy. You go to a play and you that's that's moving and stirs your soul you think about things that you don't from a romantic comedy <laughs> there's a way that laughing is frivolous entertainment that might distract you from dealing with what is most serious and most ultimate a little bit of sadness can go a long way to encouraging you to seize the day and live life more fully under god in verse 4 he gives a great illustration And he asks us, uh, he he makes the point that um, how we deal with life and death is an issue of our heart. And he asks, where is yours? Is your heart found in the schoolhouse of life or in the theater of ignorance? Are you simply entertaining yourself and intoxicating yourself with entertainment because you don't want to deal with life? Or is your heart in the schoolhouse of life, learning all the lessons that God has for us? He moves on. Solomon continues. And he asks the question, when you reach the proverbial fork in the road, which way will you walk? Which way will you walk? There's a fork in the road in verses 5 through 12 of chapter 7. Which way will you walk? Listen to what the Scriptures say. Again, it is better to listen to rebuke from a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. For like the crackling of burning thorns under the pot, So is the laughter of the fool. This too is futile. Surely the practice of extortion turns a wise person into a fool and a bribe destroys the mind. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. A patient spirit is better than a proud spirit. Don't let your spirit rush to be angry, for anger abides in the heart of fools. Don't say, why were the former days better than these? Since it's not wise of you to ask this. Wisdom is as good as an inheritance and an advantage to those who see the sun, because wisdom is protection, as money is protection. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of its owner. Which way will you walk? As you just heard, there's a great contrast between wisdom, which is referred to in verses 5 through 12 six times, and foolishness, which is uh, repeated four times. And he gives us three ways in verses 5 through 12 for us to pursue wisdom. He asks us the question, will you listen to the wise? Will you listen to the wise? He says that to be rebuked is better than to be entertained. Now, I don't expect to hear an amen to that, but he says when you are rebuked by a wise person, it is good for you. And it's better to be rebuked by a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. Why? Because the Bible says that the wounds of a friend are faithful. Listen to this, the wounds of a friend or faithful. When a friend hurts you as a friend, intentionally, it's because they're trying to do you good. But that an enemy does what? Multiplies kisses. What do you want? Kisses or wounds? If you're wise, you'll consider the character of the person that's handing them out. And if it's a friend, you'll take wounds from a friend, but you will stay far away from the kisses of an enemy. Are you listening? Because the wounds of a friend, the wounds of the wise, the rebuke of the wise is constructive, but the song of fools is destructive. These fools are compared to quickly burning tinder. You know what tinder is? It's the very first thing that you use when you make a bonfire. It burns up quickly. It's gone. And then you put the hardwood of wisdom that will give light and heat to everyone. The tinder, poof, it's gone. That's what the life of the fool is like. While the wise are compared to hardwoods giving light and heat, there's the difference between a flame of wisdom and the flicker of fools. And so he gives you this contrast between the rebuke of the wise and the song of the fools. And let me just suggest, while we're on the theme of music, I think that you'll probably hear someone sing How Great Thou Art at the funeral, but you'll never hear Justin Bieber's Baby, Baby, Baby. Watch out who you listen to. Just because you listen to the wise, he gives a warning. Just because you listen to the wise doesn't mean that you're going to be wise. You have to continually heed. You can lose your wisdom. Do you know that? He talks about that in verse 7. He says that uh, the practice of extortion will turn a wise person into a fool and a bribe will destroy the mind. He warns us, don't let your heart be wooed by wealth. Wealth has been a stumbling block for all kinds of normal people, but for wise people too. And while they aspire to wisdom, they get shipwrecked because they listen to the fool song that what will make them important is money. And now they start to do things that they should never do, practice extortion and take bribes. Why? All about the green. How do I get it? So he says, be very careful because there will be terrible punishments for those who do not live wisely when it comes to Wealth. he asks the second question. It's not only will you listen to the wise. He asks, will you persevere in patience? I've got to get away from the pulpit. In case lightning strikes, my, my dad made that. I don't want to get it hurt. Okay. <laughs> How many of you think that patience lesson, you need some remedial work in it? Oh, you all way too pious this morning. Ain't nobody going <laughs> to... Thank you, Miss Joanne. Me and Joanne are the only ones, yeah, right here, Kim. We're the only ones with our hands raised. Do you think you need a little bit more patience? Oh my goodness. Listen, I've watched some of you drive. Yes, you need some more patience. <laughs> some of you don't just drive fast. When you're pushing the buggy in the supermarket, man, you're like, beep, beep, out of the way. It's, it's a serious issue. And so he issues this really cryptic statement. You look at well, look at what he says here. Oh, let me see where I'm at. Verse eight. He says the end of a matter is beginning. Uh, the end of a matter is better than its beginning. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Here's the deal. When you're starting out, what kind of intentions do you have for whatever you are endeavoring to do? Oh, you're shooting for the moon. There are all kinds of things that can trip you up on your journey. And why he says the end of a matter is better than a beginning is you actually truly get to evaluate something at the end. Your uh, good intentions and uh, pipe dreams look great, but they don't necessarily amount to anything. So he's saying, if you, want to, if you want to live a life of wisdom, be patient in your evaluation. You know why? God's not done working on you yet, and he's not done working on everybody that's around you. And, and you'll find out at the end exactly what kind of name you have. Do you have a good name? It's a, it's a weird statement, but he's basically saying all's well that ends well and you don't know it ends well until it ends well, persevere, press on. And until the full course is run, there's still an opportunity for you to trip. You ever watch the Olympics where, you know, the guy pulls up on the last lap thinking that he's so far ahead and the guy from fifth place ends up winning? Or tragedy of tragedy, he trips right before he crosses the finish line. We just saw that money can turn the wise into fools. And so he says, guys, listen, don't assume that you've arrived. Don't assume that you've arrived. Always run that race. That's why he says the end is better than the beginning. Beginnings are just dreams, and we must be prepared for the long haul, which requires patience. Patience. He says two things about patience that are Uh, Two ways that they are manifested that are important for us to learn. First, the wise are patient in their relationships. The wise are patient in their relationships. He says, don't let your heart be hasty to get angry. Have you ever noticed that, like, um, goodness and kindness and patience is a slow burn, but anger is a fast burn? Oh, goodness. Some of us can get angry really, really quick. You can go, it's like slamming on the brakes. You can go from 100 miles an hour of good to the zero miles an hour of anger in a split second. But you know, goodness doesn't work the same way. You don't go from zero to 60 in 2.9 seconds when it comes to being good, when it comes to being kind, when it comes to being patient. Why is it important to be patient in relationships? Because if you do not keep your anger in check, you will ruin all the relationships that you have. It does not make sense to be angry. They've said anger is like um, wanting to poison your enemy and drinking it yourself. You ever had somebody that not even know you're angry at them? And that just makes you more angry. Do they know how mad I am? No, they don't care. They have moved on. You have your own issues that you're dealing with and so you have poured a cup of poison for them and then drank it yourself and it is eating you up from the inside. That's why the Bible says, do not let the sun set on your anger. If, if I could download that into the computer of your brain. And over the course of your life, you never went to bed angry, but you dealt with everything on the day that it happened. Do you think you'd sleep better? Oh, I know you would. You think you'd have a better name? Oh, I know you would. Do you think you'd be living the way you really, you really aspire to live and the way God wants you to? Absolutely, because he wouldn't have put it in his word if he didn't want you to aspire to this. Don't let the sun set on your anger he says another way that patience is uh, patience is uh, exhibited is that those who are wise are patient in the present patient in the present look at this verse 10 don't say why were the former days better than these it's not wise of you to ask that if your answer <laughs> if your answer to what is wrong with the world today is kids these days you have a problem you have a big problem Because you know what? Your grandparents said that about you too. Can't can't learn him nothing, you know? And in every age, okay, listen, every age, every age, every generation presents unique challenges, yeah, and unique opportunities. You know, I, I hear how people talk about, well, I don't want change. And you can't avoid it. How many of you drive a car that's less than five years old? If you don't like changing, go get a Studebaker. Yeah, how many of you have, have a house, with uh, new appliances, or have a, a new phone? You certainly don't mind change when it comes to that. The Bible says just be very careful about being grumpy about how God is overruling today. Because He overruled your day when your grandparents complained about you. And He's just saying it's not good to be known It's just a grumpy Gus, and to remember that your grandparents once said the same thing about you. He also asks, will you recognize the advantage of wisdom? Will you recognize the advantage of wisdom? He says, it's like an inheritance. And we all know that while money is not the most important thing in life, there are opportunities and there are things that come your way that money will allow you to enjoy. You cannot go out for dinner and mama not cook if you don't have money. Unless you're going to wash the dishes, you need money to be able to go and enjoy that opportunity. In the same way, if you don't have wisdom, there will be experiences for you to enjoy that you won't be able to because you don't have wisdom. That's why it makes the comparison. Wisdom is like an inheritance. An inheritance means that there are going to be things that you can enjoy and you can do because you possess it. In the same way, if you don't possess wisdom, there will be enjoyments and experiences you will miss out on. There are perks. They come with a life of wisdom, namely, a good name. You enjoy that if you recognize the advantage of wisdom. You forfeit it if you can't. Look at how it says it. Verse 11, wisdom is as good as an inheritance. And then listen to this, an advantage to those who see the sun. Who sees the sun? The dead or the living? The living. Here's what he's saying, and this is radical. This is part and parcel of Old Testament wisdom that wisdom is beneficial for this life. Some of us live and we make this great divorce between this life and the life to come. Now, the truth is, this life is the appetizer of the main course. But we tend to think, you know, life's going to be miserable now until Jesus comes back. That might happen. There are some people who have pretty miserable existences. There's just difficulty upon difficulty that they experience But the Bible is saying that wisdom pays off for this life. And we know, according to the New Testament, that it pays off in the life to come. Solomon doesn't have that understanding yet. Solomon believes in the afterlife, but not the way the New Testament teaches it. He says a life of wisdom, one of the greatest advantages, is that it will provide an advantage in this life. Right now. Immediately. Not just after you die if we take care and we listen to the wise and by the way who are the wise the godly because who is wiser than god so don't just think you know we're looking for upstanding citizens no we're looking for people that emulate god's character This is not a horizontal issue of just looking for people that are better at trivial pursuit than you are. This is saying the wise are people that are connected to God and are living His way and can give me advice, counterintuitive, hard advice, uh, uh, rebukes from the wise that help me to live according to God's way that leads me to the cross and leads me to the gospel, which leads to our fourth and final point. We are asked, will you give gracious and humble consideration to all of God's governing, will you give humble and gracious consideration to all of God's governing? Look at verse 13 and 14, and we'll be done. Consider the work of God for who can straighten out what he has made crooked in the day of prosperity? Be joyful, but in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man cannot discover anything that will come after him. He asks the question, what is good? To which Solomon gives the emphatic answer, what is good is a good name, and you'll only get a good name by being godly, by being wise. He says, who's going to tell us what what the future holds? And he said, there's only one who knows what the future holds. His name is God. And he doesn't necessarily want you to know what's going to happen. He wants you to focus on who you're going to be. Are you going to Share his character. And he says, listen, God makes the day of adversity as well as the day of prosperity. It's not an or, it's an and. God rules over the day of prosperity to which we all say, amen, we know that. And then he says he's also in charge when things do not go the way that you want. So he tells us in prosperity, rejoice. And in adversity, he tells us, trust. Trust trust. Listen to this quote. I think there's a temptation for us to, in adversity, think that God is not on his throne. God has gone to the bathroom. He's run to McDonald's. He's obviously not answering the phone. He's not in the throne room of heaven because this never would have happened. Listen to this quote. The Lord is lovingly involved in the operation of an exceedingly complex universe. Let's underline exceedingly complex universe. It's difficult. God's mysterious providence is too wonderful to comprehend. You believe that? God's providence is, it's deep waters. It's too much for you to understand. Human perceptions of justice are not the scales on which the righteousness of God is weighed. Don't we sound like we're holding God in contempt of court because he doesn't do things the way that we want to? Our scale of justice is not the way his righteousness is weighed and that God has an inescapable purpose in everything He does, even if that purpose is never revealed to His creatures. God's in charge. Whether you want to acknowledge it or not, in the way of wisdom is to graciously and humbly consider, He says it twice, consider the work of God. Consider that God has made the one as well as the other. And so this morning, as we think about suffering and we think about death, and we think about oppression, and we think about learning to walk wisely, we remember this, that Jesus came specifically to point us to God, to make a way that we might know Him and be reconciled to Him. And while He, unlike any other human being that lived before Him, walked perfectly wisely... He he taught the word of God accurately. He lived without sin. He was sinless on the very worst day ever. He died because we killed him. And he allowed himself to be sacrificed to pay for our sins. Friends, if we do not understand the gospel, there is no opportunity for us to be wise. And if God allows his son to be murdered for your sin and for my sin, How can we doubt His goodness when things less significant than the murder of the Son of God happen? God is working for our good. And when He died for our sin, He died to eradicate all oppression and all injustice and all suffering. And if we want eternal life, the Bible says that eternal life comes from knowing God and the one He has sent, Jesus Christ, our Savior. He has emphatically, emphatically, Once and for all, victoriously dealt with sin there, but it will not be until he returns that we experience the blessed promise of Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling place is with humanity, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their guide. Verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. Friends, persevere. Be patient. Don't be angry. Don't dance around death, but seek to learn everything from life that God has given you as a gift, that you might find the even greater gift, not of biological life, but life eternal that comes only through Christ. Pray with me, please. Father, help us to not love the things of this world more than the things of your world. Help us not to think that this world is something that you are not sovereignly in control of. This world is your world as much as your world is your world. And Father, we come to you this morning, and if I could pray on behalf of my people, Father, we know that our hearts are tempted sometimes to doubt your goodness. Sometimes we're tempted not to trust. Sometimes we're tempted to not think that you're in control. And the role of our worship, and the role of our fellowship, and the role of the encouragement that is to come this morning is to help us trust in our big and awesome God to sing with a united voice that our God is great and greatly to be praised in all of our life, all of our, everything that makes us who we are is worth submitting to your good and gracious name because you desire to bless your creatures who will repent and turn from their sin and place their faith in your son. Help us to do it. Help us to renew that commitment. Help us by your spirit to walk as your disciples. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.